Hi, this is Carl Polichuk. Welcome to another SMB Community Podcast. I am honored today to be joined by Dominica DeGrandis, and she's the author of a truly great book called Making Work Visible. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Carl. I'm excited to be here. So why don't you give us a little background? So you are the Director of Digital Transformation at TaskTop, uh, and your background is in project management and particularly software development? My background is actually, uh, I spent many years doing configuration management, working on engineering teams, doing builds and deployments, and that led into automating builds and releases and deployments, which is sort of how I got started in the, the whole DevOps movement. So um, my brother, who you probably don't know, but he knows you, he talks about your book absolutely nonstop. And so... Uh, I said, all right, you know, put it on my list, and it showed up from Amazon, and I gobbled it up. It was so good. I, I sincerely appreciate it. And the part that really struck me is right from the start, because what we do is, you know, IT nerds, we have tickets that come in nonstop. We work them, uh, log the time, you know, send out invoices, and somewhere in all that mix, we have lots and lots of work in progress. And you make just an amazing point about how we all need to reduce the amount of work in progress, which is completely counterintuitive. Can you talk about that for a minute? It is counterintuitive because people think that we need to start things sooner so that we can finish them on time, when in reality, the, the earlier start things, if, if you haven't finished other things before that, now you've just got that much more on your plate to try and balance. And people are just drowning. They are overwhelmed, and we're starting to see the consequences of that with people uh, being overloaded, uh, they're exhausted, and there's a lot of people at high risk for burnout in technology. Um, today. So my message really is to help people understand that if they can start finishing work before starting new work, that they'll actually get that work done sooner and it'll be of higher quality, uh, you know, with fewer mistakes and that they'll be happier because nothing frustrates engineers more than being interrupted when they're deep in thought, and not just engineers, but in pretty much everybody, if you're deep in thought on a complex problem, if you're interrupted, you have to, you know, with one of those, got a minute? Well, nothing <laughs> just takes a minute, right? You have to, you know, your, your mindset is interrupted. You have to stop and switch, address this emergency or request that's come up that may or may not actually be a better use of your time. Uh, and that context switch, A, it takes longer to get back to the point of concentration where you were at. I mean, so I can walk and talk at the same time, but if I'm deep in a, you know, problem solving and get interrupted, it could take me 10 to 20 minutes to get back to that point where I was before I got interrupted. And when I do get back to that point, I think like, where was I? And uh, it, the 
the possibility of more errors creeps in and then it's frustrating. It's just frustrating to be interrupted. Well, and we, again, in the world of tickets, we want these tickets to overlap just a little bit. And you're saying, no, one ticket has to stop and then the other ticket starts. So don't, don't do the overlap where you start one before you've finished another. It's not always possible to do that. If you're, you know, if you're, supporting production issues or you know you got a ddos attack or something uh it it really depends on the nature of the demand of your organization so if you're in operations or you're in services you know help desk um and issues that come in that sort of demand your uh attention that's a signal though to provide more availability, more capability for people to meet that demand. I mean, if something is serious, the reason that, like, take the World Cup, that has to happen on that date in July, right? That's not sliding. <laughs> That's a real true, it's not an arbitrary due date, it's a true due date. And so when the risk is high, then organizations ensure that their needs are going to be met by having enough support staff, by having enough people with the right skill sets to ensure that there's coverage there. Um, if you're on the, you know, the left-hand side of the value stream where things aren't usually quite as urgent then being able to, you have more ability to say, no, not right now. Like, let me finish this thing and then we'll pull that in. Oh, that thing's a higher priority, okay. What on my plate now do you, can we drop so that we can take this higher priority mm -hmm. in? So do you think that our modern tools make it harder for us to work on one thing at a time? Because it's so easy to, to say, just grab tasks and say, oh, I can do that one, that one, that one. Um, that's a great question because my first job out of university, I was doing configuration management and builds on IBM mainframes and we had like five tools, right? You had JCL and assembly language and COBOL and what else? I don't know. But nowadays, even just looking at DevOps tools, there's over 120 different tools that teams are using. And there's, you know, different schools of thought, people either trying to standardize and find one tool to rule them all. However, that means, I mean, it's a tough choice for sure, but if you go that route, that means telling people or teams that, they're, that they can't use the best tool to do their job that they think they should be using. And so I think if um, the solution to that is to ensure whatever tools you're using are integrated so to avoid all the duplicate data entry and to make sure that information that people are using in one tool set can be can flow easily and show up in another team downstream dependency teams tool set is easy so they don't have to go digging through email or digging through slack or digging through some wiki to try and find all the information that they need to do their job yeah it's funny because it, it, we're at the point where somebody has to have the job of managing communications, even in really tiny organizations, because 
it's everywhere. You mentioned Slack, but you know, then we have, you know, all these Yammer and people want to do stuff by Twitter and it's like, you know, Teams and then, oh, hey, did you check the drive? And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> there's too yeah. much. There's too many yeah. uh, fire hoses to drink out of. It, yeah, it's a lot. Um, I was working with a sales ops team and I asked them what, you know, what does your work intake system look like? Like, how do you get work requests? And they said, well, they come through email. I said, okay, well then what do you do with it? And they said, well, we copy the information, in the email, we post it into our workflow management tool. They're using Jira. It's like, okay, well then what happens? So sales ops, these are the people who, um, they, um, they create statement of works and NDAs and terms and conditions for contracts so salespeople can close deals. I mean, it's not, IT isn't the only organization that, that is overwhelmed, right? Right. Um, and they said that when I asked them what happens next, they said, well, we, we email the information back to the salespeople because they're not using Jira, they're in Salesforce. And so information gets emailed back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and details get lost in the email and it just reduces the collaboration and the, and the consistency of the, the information. So it, it's a real challenge. So your book is called making work visible. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of us, I think we're used to dealing in dashboards, whether it's Salesforce or our ticketing system or whatever. Mm -hmm. And those things always have things with little dials and charts and all that. But very often the graphs they give us aren't the things we need to know. So how do you choose not just how to make work visible, but which work to make visible? Yeah, uh, well, I think, so a couple answers. One is to sort of start where you are with what you've got. So <laughs> you brought up Salesforce. Uh, a lot of work intake requests do come through Salesforce and a lot of organizations. Salesforce actually has a Kanban view now um, that you can look at and it can be integrated with other tools. But I, I always ask teams, what prevents you from getting your work done to see where their biggest pain points are? Because it's hard to make everything visible and that kind of huge change is often met with resistance. So what are some of the biggest pain points that you want to um, highlight? Because if you can make them visible, then you can start to have the right conversations, you know, look at this, this is a problem, see, let's, you know, we need to modify this somehow. Um, and as far as metrics go or dashboards go, there's no, there's a plethora of data that's available at the individual team level, you know, with MTTR and how, you know, what the load is on the team but there's not a really comprehensive view at the higher organization level, like at the business level. And I think that's what we need in order to make better business decisions. Because if we're just local, if we're just optimizing locally for individual teams, which is what happens because that's how teams are measured, right? right. Your team has to improve by X percent, blah, 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 blah. 
And so then this team optimizes their function or their silo, when in reality, the bottleneck is, you know, up front, right, or maybe downstream. And so getting a big picture view at the whole organization level uh, is quite valuable. And I think that we can do that with relatively few metrics and, uh, on a dashboard. Um, this is actually what we're trying to do at TaskTop right now um, is to help people understand what we call flow metrics. So we're interested in, and these all go back to business problems and the pain points that people say. Because uh, after I ask people what prevents you from getting your work done, I say, okay, let's flip that around. What are your internal customers complaining about? In other words, what do people who ask you to do things, what are they grumbling about? Well, they're grumbling about things take too long or they have no visibility into, you know, where's my thing? And so that's why the concept of flow time is so critical to show, like, like once we decided to do this thing, how long did it take across right. all the different, you know, across the whole value stream, all the different, uh, functions in order to deliver that business value. Um, extremely interested in looking at flow load, which is how much whip the teams have on them, um, flow, um, flow distribution and flow efficiency. And I can go into details if you want on that, but in general, just, um, uh, just a few, you know, like four to five flow metrics that, you can talk to with business people who will get that and understand the value in that to help them make better business decisions. So if we engage at the business level in a discussion about metrics, how do we keep the team from just chasing the metrics versus actually, you know, just doing the work? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, it's not really about the metrics. It's about the decisions that we need we want to make better decisions and we're using the metrics to do that. Right. Um, you know, um, I'm, you probably heard of the book traction, right? Do you know, Wickman and the, uh, um, the, the whole concept that, you know, we want to make sure that we have these really big goals and that everybody's working towards that and everybody knows where their piece is and all that. And we keep uh, constantly, you know, reminding people, those are the things, those are the big rocks, right? Um, Somewhere along the line, you've got to make it where people understand their piece of the puzzle. Because I think a lot of the stress, especially in IT, but in every industry, a lot of the stress is, I only control this tiny little piece of a really big machine. And so uh, I can't do anything about where the work comes in or how fast it comes in or how many tickets we have. And I can't do anything about getting the invoicing out and finishing up the project and making sure that it's complete. I, I, I just show up and do this one thing. And so I think there's a lot of frustration in feeling like you're a cog in the wheel um, and, you know, maybe some visibility about what the rest of those people are facing will help as well. Yeah. Um, the pro so if you've got these high level initiatives up here, you know, at the company level, those tend to get broken down into smaller bits and maybe there's programs or projects and then that work is broken down into the individual team level work. And along the way, things get lost uh, between all the dependencies, especially if organizations are managing by project versus product. 
And so we're starting to see this huge change uh, in industry right now in technology where organizations now are sort of pivoting to managing work by product, by the whole value stream and everything that's needed to deliver an update to that product versus managing work by all these different projects where people get pulled in. You know, you, if you're managing by project, you um, the project comes close to end, then you, then you get pulled off to go work on this other project. And now, but, and, you, and then you hand the project over to support and you've just lost all your subject matter expertise on, on this project when people leave. Also, managing by um, project brings the question of what are you know, the whole budgeting issue and the funding issue by project versus if you can spin that around by and, and start funding by the value stream or by the, by the product, part of that problem goes away. I think I felt like I went off track there. Ask me that <laughs> question again. No, that's totally fine. The, the, the whole concept of, you know, we have these big goals, right? And so we have to say, you know, at, at some point, what are the leading indicators that get us to, you know, these results and, and keeping people on track? And I, I think that things like um, uh, Kanban boards and so forth can help. Um, but a lot of times what we're dealing with in, again, in IT support is there's, it's not always clear what those big, big, you know, rocks are and how we keep people uh, on track with those when every day they're just overwhelmed with whatever, you know, falls onto their desk that day, you know? Yeah, it's easy to not have a view of what's happening at the high level when you're in your daily grind of just doing what you specialize in. I know it was a big problem for me when I was just doing builds and releases and worrying about automating and, and deploying releases and not really understanding like what the, you know, why we were doing this and exactly, you know, who all was involved. People would say, well, the business wants this. And I would always want like, who is the business? Like who is that? And how does this help our company you know, reach its goals, whether that's generating more revenue or, I mean, cost of delay isn't always economic, but whatever that is, how does what I'm doing actually impact that um, KPI or OKR metric that they're looking at at the, at the business level? It, it's a problem for sure. And it's why we need to find ways to make the high level initiatives visible and not just the individual tickets at the team level. And so having high level boards um, can accomplish that, right? Right. The big things that are moving through and if your tools are integrated and connect to the tools that the teams are using and the different, you know, program management tools or, or whatever, you know, tools are used, including test and quality and all of that, um, then hopefully there's views there where that you can bubble up and actually see how this one little ticket that I'm working on relates to this initiative that the business is trying to release. Or on the other side, understand how it fits into protecting 
revenue. So I like to look at this work in just a few categories. One is generating revenue, and the other is revenue protection, and which is just as important, if not more important, right? Because if production's down or you're hit with a big security issue, the production always takes priority, right? Right. So um, slight switch of subjects. I think I know what your answer is going to be, but let me ask it anyway. I always love to have this discussion about priority versus calendar. Uh, you know, do you prioritize everything and work from highest to lowest priority? Or uh, do you work on a calendar and say, all right, we got these three things. We got 9, 9, 15, 9, 30, 9, 45, you know, tick, tick, tick all through the day. What's your preferred method of uh, scheduling work? I actually have a talk on this, the balanced calendar, because I've noticed three kinds of calendars. I like to call them the 30-minute jam, right, the all-day cram, and the triple book wham. <laughs> and like you can, you can have your Kanban and your whip limits set in all earnest and try and, and meet that. But if your calendar is just crammed all day long and you don't have more than 30 minutes a break, in between, like when do you get your work done? You get it at 10 p.m. after you put the kids to bed or Sunday afternoon. It's like Monday. It's like Sunday's the new Monday now. You get it the way you get your work done is um, when you know you're not going to be interrupted because I'm not going to start something if I've only got 30 minutes when I know that thing's going to take me longer than that. And so what I propose, I have a few in my book, I have a few interruption busters in my book and I talk about Pomodoro's where you set the timer and heads down and you close your slack out or at least turn the volume down so you can focus intensely on getting something done or at least getting it to a point where you can put it on the shelf and wrap it up with a bow. But when it comes to the calendar, um, I like to put do not disturb hours on the calendar. So, so there's creative work and then there's decision-making work. And decision makers, the leaders, the executives, their calendar is probably fine parsed out into hour long segments because they meet with other decision makers. The creative maker people, these are the designers, the developers, the writers. These people need long amounts of uninterrupted time in order to get their work done. They're, one hour is not enough, it's not going to do it. Right? They want, you need two hour, 90 minutes to two hour blocks of time on the calendar during your working day. Because if you can't get your most important work done during your working day, that's a red flag. Right. And so this needs some buy-in from your manager uh, and hopefully get a coordinated time, at least maybe with your team, to reduce the amount of interruptions by having a dedicated 90 minutes to two hour do not disturb time on the calendars and actually block that out to allow for people to get the, you know, the highest priority work done. So, and you're also a fan of putting these little blocks in throughout the day so that things, you know, if one domino falls, it doesn't necessarily hit the next one. If possible, I mean, I think people are lucky 
from my observations, I think people are in a pretty good spot if they can have at least one of those um, uninterrupted blocks of time on their calendar a day. I mean, and, and all the more if, if you can get it every day. Ideally, you'd have two of them a day. I call it my D1 and my D2, my deliverable one. What is the, mo what is the highest priority that if I could finish today would be, you know, the biggest bang for the buck. What is that? And then intensely focus on that. But, and, and if I get that done in the morning, then <laughs> I'm happy, right? I and mean, it brings up morale. You've got, whenever you finish something, it's, um, you know, it's just a, a it's a booster um, for your serotonin and your dopamine and all of those. If you can get two of those done in a day, flying high, but you really can't if people are booking your whole calendar, you know, if you allow, there are cultures, there are burnout cultures where people feel they're, they have no control over their calendar. But I would argue that I think most people have more power than they think they do and that you don't necessarily have to accept every single meeting um, that comes along. And even with your boss, because it's hard to say no to the boss, uh, being able to explain uh, why having a good chunk of time to finish the most important work would be quite valuable for the whole organization. Right. Well, I mean, we have tools where people right now, you could literally sit down, open a ticket, and then the timer starts, and we can measure our work to the one minute, to the half a minute if we choose to. And at some point, it's it's absurd. It's just too much, right? I mean, I'm a big fan of the 15-minute block of time and that, you know, I, I don't need to be a lawyer and, and bill in six-minute increments, and I don't need to track my employees' time in one-minute increments, you know. Um, how do you, you know, on the kind of, I guess, on the soft side, without regard to those tools that can make us slaves almost, how do you generate a culture where it's okay to say, I really, you know, I'm more productive if I don't take this meeting. <laughs> yeah. Culture is, um, or, or, you know, changing behavior. It, it can be a real challenge. I think it does lead from the top. So we need executives and leadership um, having empathy for their staff who is overwhelmed and overloaded and looking at, you talked about leading indicator earlier. Well, work in progress is something that can be fairly easy, easily measured and it is a leading indicator. And it is, you know, the biggest um, looking at WIP can help leaders understand and see why allocating people at high levels of utilization is going to result in people not being available when you need them, hence things taking longer. So I used to complain, so what I'm, where I'm going here is, is measure stuff and show it. When I was doing builds at Corvus um, back in the day, um, teams used to grumble about how long they took which I, of course, took personally, 
And so I, I sort of set out to show them that it's really not the bills that are taking too long. It's this, it's this, these manual tests that have to be done afterwards. I used to rant that we didn't have automated testing, but ranting got me absolutely nowhere. It wasn't until I started showing the data and I was just blown away because in a calm manner, showing the data and my observations, I got budget, I got headcount, but probably more importantly, I got empathy from people recognizing just the sheer amount of requests that my team was up against and why we weren't able to meet the needs of the engineering teams. Um, so I do think that in order to become the voice of reason in your organization, that you know, showing the data can help convince people who might not recognize or realize why there's problems. Very cool. Well, believe it or not, we're out of time. So we're going to uh, put up a picture of your book here so everybody can go to Amazon and order it or order it off of your site if you've got it. Um, and we'll put up your Twitter link. And with luck, folks will get in touch with you, follow you. Uh, you've got a lot of um, good videos on YouTube. So uh, different presentations you made over the years. So we'll point people to that as well. Thank, Thank you for being you with so us. Much.